If you would, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Let's pray as we get ready to continue our time in Deuteronomy together. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, we come now to the reading of your word, the teaching of your word, and God, we need your help. Oh, how we love your law. It's our meditation all the day. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see wondrous things from your law. God, please give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And Lord, please come and deal with us. God, convict us or encourage us, Lord. Sanctify us, Lord. Cleanse us. Make us more like Christ. God, let your word do its work in our hearts. Thank you so much for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of Deuteronomy together and a little bit of review from where we were last week. What is Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is the words of Moses. We see that in the introduction to this book in verse, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 says, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. Verse 3 says, these are the words that Moses spoke, the commandments that God had given him. And verse 5, it says, Moses undertook to explain this law. So these are the words of Moses to Israel. This is um, large portions and when I say that, I mean, for example, chapter 1, verse 6, where we're starting today, all the way to chapter 4, verse 40, large portions of Scripture devoted just to the speeches of Moses as he addresses Israel. So verse, chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to 440, it's just one whole speech from Moses. And so these are the words of Moses, and then here's, here's something important to remember. These are the final words of Moses. By the end of this book, chapter 34, we're going to get an account of his death. So these are his last words. These are his final words. And the audience that gets to hear these final words of Moses is the people of Israel. Now specifically, it's that new generation. You remember that old generation that was delivered out of Egypt. It was taken to Horeb or Mount Sinai and given the law and entered into covenant with God and sent to the land to take the land, they were unfaithful. They were a rebellious generation. So in God's judgment, he allowed them or he caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and they would die off. That people, that generation, besides Joshua and Caleb, would die off. And then here's this new generation. In Deuteronomy, it's the words, the final words of Moses to this new generation before they enter into the promised land. And that war that would ensue on the other side of the Jordan. Now, like we talked about last week, how will God prepare this people? 
How is God going to get them ready to do what their fathers couldn't do? Their fathers were fearful. They were afraid, right? Remember that? You can read about that in Numbers 13 and 14 where they, they come up to the land that God had promised them. And what do they see? They see fortified cities. They see massive men and massive armies. And out of fear and anxiety, they don't stand on the promise of God. They fail to enter the land. They fail to trust God at His word. And so how, God, how will God prepare this new generation not to be like their fathers? And we mentioned two things. One, He gave them a taste of victory. Remember that in verse 4? When did these final words go down? Right after those, verse 4, right after those battles against Sihon and, and Og and these, these peoples. Right after those battles, this is like they, took, they had a victory over these two peoples. And then they get these speeches from Moses. Now, that is an encouragement to them. Remember, what the fathers were scared of were fortified cities and massive men. Well, you go read and you're going to find this out as we continue through Deuteronomy, specifically in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that Sihon and Og that they defeated before they entered the land were these people of fortified cities and giant men and, um, and big armies. And God allows them to get a taste of victory before they enter in. He's preparing them to take the land. He's preparing them for the war beyond the Jordan. Now, I also mentioned last week that, that God is going to prepare them through holy remembrance. Remember, chapter 1, verse 6 to 440 is one speech from Moses. And if you look at what that speech contains, those last words, it's just remember what God did here. Remember what God said here. Remember the promise of God here. Remember how your fathers respond and be warned by this. It's holy remembrance that's meant to cause them to trust in their God and feel warned. The warnings that they should feel based off the way God dealt with their fathers. And so, and so here we have this holy remembrance, and we're about to read the very beginning of that. So chapter 1, verse 6 through 18 is where we're going to try to make it through today. And this is the very first part of Moses' holy remembrance to these people as they get ready to go into the land. Look at verse 6. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland, in the Negev, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites in Lebanon. As far as the great river, the river Euphrates, see, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time I told you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are. And bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise and understanding and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. 
And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Now, in this text, this beginning of Moses' address to the people of Israel, his last words, he really gives them two main reminders here. So just sort of an overview of what we just read. He gives them two main reminders here. Number one is in verse 6 through 8. He, he makes them remember, he, he recalls to them how 40 years ago when you were in Horeb, when you were at Mount Sinai, at some point, God told you to leave that place and move towards the land of the Canaanites, move towards that promised land. And he, and he moved them in that direction to take possession of that land while they stood on the promise of God. That's verse 6 through 8. He's, he's telling this new generation, do you remember that? Okay. Now, the second reminder he gives them is verse 9 through 18. And he recalls for them how and why he appointed leaders for them. So he says, you remember at Mount Horeb, God told us to leave. God told us to go take possession of the land. And before we left Horeb, he reminds them in verse 9 through 18, before we left that place, I set up these leaders here. And he, and he reminds them of how he did that and why he did that and the fact that they agreed to it all. So these are the two main reminders here, the the leaving you know remember when we God told us to leave Horeb and go take possession and remember when number two remember when I appointed these leaders it's the two main reminders here now I want us to start in verse six through eight that first reminder let's read that again so just look at this listen to this lean in listen to this first reminder in verse six through eight of how God told them to leave Mount Sinai the Lord our God said to us in Horeb you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. And he tells them where to go. He gives specifics here. He mentions the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon. And then look at verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Now, what exactly did God, when they were at Mount Sinai, what exactly did God want them to do when he said this? He wanted them to leave Horeb. He wanted them to journey back to the land of the Canaanites, which, by the way, is where their forefathers lived, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. Go back to the land of the, of the Canaanites where they lived. I want you to take possession of it. That's, there's going to be warfare involved. I want you to take it. You're going to have to go to war and take that land. And, they're going to, and I, want to, I want to read this to you from Numbers 10. Because in Numbers 10, 
we get a little taste of them starting to do that. Listen to this. This is Numbers chapter 10, verse 13. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So there they are in Horeb and Mount Sinai, and that's what they did. They, they set out at the command of Moses. Numbers 10, verse 33 says this. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord, three days' journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And you remember this? And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So he says that, and they set out. And when it rested, Moses said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So this is, they're, they're starting to do, okay, they started to do what God wanted them to do. Leave Horeb, head towards the land of Canaan to take possession of it. Now, how did God want them to do this? In what manner, with what heart did God want them to do this? And, and, and this is what I want you to see from verse 8. He wanted them to do this while standing on a promise. Did he want them to do it in their own flesh, by their own strength? Hey, Israel, you got so many numbers now. You're, you're multitudes of people. You're so strong. You're so mighty. Go take the land. Is that the way he wanted, wanted them to do it? In the strength of their own flesh? And the answer is absolutely not. He wanted them to do it while standing on a promise from God, which is why we see that in verse 8. Go in and take possession of the land. What land? That the Lord your God swore, promised to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. We can read about that in Genesis. God promised them that land, the land of Canaan. And I want you to go take possession of it, standing on the promise that he gave to Abraham and he gave to Isaac and he gave to Jacob. Now we could go back and read those. I mean, it's Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 26, Genesis 28. We don't have time, but you could just go through and trace out that land promise. God promised over and over again to this, to this people of Israel, to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promised to them that they would have this land of Canaan. And so how does God want them to take it? With faith. I want you to go in Full of faith. Listen, listen to this. Listen to Deuteronomy. This is chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess the nations that are greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to, up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim whom you know and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? What kind of encouragement is that? Go take the land. What land? The one where the people are that are greater than you, mightier than you, more numerous than you. By the way, you know that saying, who can stand before those people? That's where I want you to go. Seriously? How, do I want you, how does he want them to do it? With faith and a promise. I'm going to keep reading. Know therefore today, so as he sends them into that, know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. 
He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So go out how? In the strength of the flesh? No. Go out and take possession of the land. Leaned against a promise. A promise that God has given. Now, did they do that? When they left Horeb, did they do that? Well, we see that they left. They left Mount Sinai. They headed in that direction. But we know, and we'll, we'll look at more in the coming weeks, that when they got there, when they got to the, up to the edge of the promised land, the things that they saw, the fortified cities and difficult circumstance and possible things, made them disregard the promise and instead live by sight. Now, this new generation, so Moses is reminding the new generation of those people being sent out from Horeb with a promise. Why does Moses, right here at the very beginning of this, whole, this speech of holy remembrance, why does Moses want them to remember God's word in Horeb? They're about to take possession, this new generation. They're about to go to war. And so he wants them to be encouraged to take possession while they stand on a promise. To go to war while they stand on the word. To go to battle while they stand on the Bible. He wants them to stand on something that God has already said. No confidence in the flesh. And he wants that new generation not to make the mistake of their fathers. Remember God's word. Remember what God has already said. He wants them to live by faith and not by sight. Like their fathers looked at the things, the things that their eyes can see. It seems impossible. But, but what do they have? They got a promise from God sitting right here. New generation, do this new generation. Listen, grab that promise. Who cares what you see around you? Grab the word of God. God's word is faithful. It's always true. Stand on it. Stand on it as you move forward. Now, what would God have us to take away from this? What's the application for us? And I believe the application is we need to live on the same principle. That we would be a people. I mean, do you know that God does this on purpose, right? So here's what God could have done. He could have said, go to the land of Canaan. By the way, when you get there, I've already wiped them all out. It's just a free land. It's just sitting there. Just go over there and you'll be fine. God could have Surely he could have done that, but he doesn't do it that way because what does God allow? He allows circumstances around you to cause you to trust in his word. He allows you to be in certain, he allows the, he allows his people to be in certain scenarios where, where you're going to be pushed or, or maybe even tempted to not stand on his word, but you're going to have to show that look how trustworthy he is. I've got a promise from him. I don't care what I see around me. And we need to live off that exact same principle. Now, that's, that, that can apply in many, many different ways. Listen, we as the people of God are supposed to go to war. Uh, war for holiness. Go to war for winning lost souls and advancing the kingdom and building the church. We're supposed to go to war, but we go to war not in the flesh, but by standing on promises. One example would be striving for Christ's likeness. Shouldn't we strive to kill sin and be like Jesus? Absolutely we should. And we strive from, for Christ's likeness. How? In what way? 
in the flesh? No, we stand on promises like Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in me will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. So I strive for holiness, leaned against the promise that, that God's going to complete this work He started in me. And this can apply in so many different ways of standing on promises from God. Now, I do want to mention one specific way, and it's because of this. Israel is... is the New Testament talks about Israel as, as, as sort of a, a type of the church. And so I want you to think about this. How is the land promise ultimately fulfilled? I'm going to give you that land. How is that ultimately going to be fulfilled or, or is being fulfilled? How is that going to happen? Okay. Well, we know when we read Genesis, remember the accounts in Genesis, he promises them, he promises them the land of Canaan. But it seems to have a, 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 a global uh, fruition or a, a global ending. Because he says, all nations, there's going to come one through this Messiah that's raised up in the promised land. There's going to come one that blesses all the nations, the Christ. So it has this sort of global fulfillment, even though it's about the land of Canaan. Which takes me to this verse. Listen to Romans 4, verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world. Now that world there is cosmos. He's Abraham and his seed. Abraham and his offspring will be heirs of the world. Well, where does God promise that to Abraham and his seed? That he'll be heir of the cosmos, of the world. I thought it was just the land of Canaan. Well, those promises about the land of Canaan have a, a, a final global fulfillment of all nations. And so here's, here's the exhortation. The seed of Abraham will inherit the entire world. So, so here, here's, here's an application. Church, church of Christ, go and take possession of the world. Go take possession of the cosmos. Go destroy God's enemies. How? With the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take the gospel to the world and do it while you stand on a promise. Example, Matthew 28. Go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them. How? How do we do that? Well, before that, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. After that, he said, I will be with you always to the ends of the age. Go make war in this way. Standing on my promise, I said I'd be with you. Now, verse 9 through 10 as we move on here, it moves on to how leaders were appointed in Israel. That's verse 9 through 18. So now Moses is reminding them not just of how they left and the promise, but hey, before we left Horeb, here's how and why appointed leaders, these judges, these leaders in Israel. Now why... Does this passage tell us that Moses appointed these leaders? Well, it tells us in verse 9 through 12. Look at it. Here's why Moses appointed these leaders. Verse 9. At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he's promised you. 
How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? So what's the answer? Why does Moses appoint these leaders? Verse 9 through 12 says, Moses says, I can't bear you by myself. How could I bear you by myself? There, there are some passages in, in, there's a passage in Numbers and a passage in Exodus that it, they're, they're accounts of this same kind of thing of Moses appointing leaders. It's, 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 those are the passages you go to to see what's Moses recalling right here. And listen to the phrases there. This is Numbers eleven fourteen. Moses says this, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. So he appoints these leaders. Listen to Exodus 18, verse 18. This is what his father-in-law Jethro said to him. He said, the thing is too heavy for you, Moses. It's too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And so he appoints leaders, like we see here in Deuteronomy 1. So, so why? Why appoint leaders in Israel? Exodus 18, Numbers 11, and Deuteronomy 1 tells us it's because Moses can't do it alone. The burden is too heavy for him. He can't carry these people by himself. Moses is weak. Now, Deuteronomy and the rest of Scripture presents Moses to us as a, as a good and an honorable mediator. And yet he's a man. And he's a weak man. And he's a man with sin. And so this is the reason, this is at least one of the reasons, that the book of Deuteronomy tells us about a greater than Moses mediator that is to come. Deuteronomy 18, we read it last week. Acts 3 tells us that's about Jesus. There's one coming that will never ever have to say, verse 12, how can I bear the burden of you and your strife? There's coming one that would never have to say that, a greater than Moses mediator, a prophet like Moses and yet greater than Moses. Now I was thinking about this and the moment where I was thinking about the, the moments where that burden and that weight felt the heaviest on Jesus, the greater than Moses mediator. And I thought about Gethsemane, where he's there and he's sweating great drops of blood and, and, and he's calling out, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. He knew he's about to drink down the cup of God's wrath, drink down God's wrath for me and you, for his people. He knows he's about to do that. And he's sweating great drops of blood. It feels like he's about to die in this moment. And yet, what does he say? Does he say, I can't bear this burden. I can't bear the burden of these people. Does he say that? Instead, he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. And he moves straight in to absorbing the wrath of God for his people. Burden's too heavy for Moses. Burden's not too heavy for Jesus. And so here he's appointing leaders. Why? Moses is weak. Now, now that was to the old generation, but here's Moses talking to that new generation, his final words. He's reminded them of God's command and God's promise. And now Moses reminds them of how and why he appointed these leaders. Why? Why at this moment does Moses want to remind the new generation of this before they enter in? to the promised land most practically 
I think the most practical answer is that the man that has led them for 40 years is about to die. They're about to head into the war on the other side of the Jordan. They're going to they're gonna head into the promised land to take possession of it. And the man that's led them for 40 years is not the one leading them in there. And so Moses reminds them before Joshua's appointed and before that even happens that one man can't carry this burden alone. And he reminds them of that as they enter in. Now, I believe this passage, Moses reminding the new generation of this, it's also meant to tell them, remind the people, the new generation, of what kind of people they're supposed to be. What kind of people they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be a people marked by righteousness. And this reminds them of that. Now, let me try to explain that. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answer me the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men. I set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charge your judges at that time. So, so here's these leaders, these commanders, these judges. What kind of judges were they supposed to be? Hear cases between your brothers and judge righteously. Judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. So Moses appoints judges here. And what kind of judges? Righteous judges that will uphold and implement standards of righteousness in this nation. And as we go on throughout the book of Deuteronomy, the law of God, the standard of righteousness is going to be read and, and exposed to them, uh, exposited to them as we continue on. This is a reminder as he puts these righteous judges in place, or as he reminds them that that happened, put these righteous judges in place that are to uphold and implement standards of righteousness, that you are to be a people marked by righteousness. This is the reminder for the new generation. Now, here's what I mean by people marked by righteousness. A people conformed to God. A people conformed to the righteous one. A people conformed to the words of God, to the law of God. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A people marked by righteousness, not evil, not a people where evil goes unchecked and undealt with. No, a people marked by righteousness, not corruption. Not where people are, are mistreated because of, because of uh, partiality or intimidation or whatever it might be. No, a people marked by righteousness. And they're putting on display the righteousness and judgment and justice of God. And you see that in that phrase in verse 17. Why should these judges judge righteously? Verse 17 says... For the judgment is God's. The judgment is God's. He, so here's this reminder from the beginning. Not only verse 6 through 8, hey, you're going to go take possession of this land, do what your fathers couldn't do by standing on a promise. 
But here in verse 9 through 18, here's this reminder. My expectation, God's expectation for you is that you would be a people marked off from the world, marked off from the pagans by righteousness. And may we as His church be the same. Now what kind of men, what kind of men must be in leadership for a people to be marked off by righteousness? What kind of leaders must come from these people? And that's what Moses describes for us here. Now, you see it in verse 13, verse 15, and verse 17. These qualifications of the kind of men that you must put forward, or Moses says that I put forward back here, the kind of men that I put forward as your leaders, as your judges, so that you would be a people marked by righteousness. Now, let me give you the quick summary. We're going to come back to this. Number one, he does say this should be men. Number two, wise and understanding. Number three, experienced. You see that word there? Number four, impartial. Number five, courageous. And I get that from not easily intimidated, as we saw, we saw right there in our passage. And then number six, humble. See if you can see that as we read back through that. Look at verse 13 again. Choose for your tribes... Wise and understanding and experienced men. So they need to be men. They need to be wise and understanding. They need to be experienced. Now look at verse 15. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and I set them as heads over you. Look down at verse 17, his charge to them. You shall not be partial, impartial men. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated, courageous men. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I'll hear there shall be humble men. Now, I want us to dig into each one of these characteristics. But before we do, let me, let me just try to mention uh, ways that this, could be, this, this should be and could be applied to us today. Number one, I'll mention three ways very quickly. Number one, these, these are the kind of men that the qualifications described here, these are the kind of men that are qualified to govern a nation. These are the kind of men that are qualified to govern a nation. So let this, let this passage affect your views of government and politics. Let it affect the way that you vote. The pagan cultures all around them, character didn't matter. The character of the man, the qualifications of the man, it didn't matter. But in God's system, it does. The characteristics of this man, the, the, the godliness, the goodness and godliness of this man, it matters. And so it should matter to us. Number two, and more importantly, these are also the kind of men that are qualified to govern God's church. To govern God's church. 1 Peter 2.9 calls the church a holy nation. A holy nation. And Jesus is our greater than Moses mediator. Okay? And like Moses, Jesus sets up in his churches pastors and shepherds. And here's a description of what they should be like. Just like we have qualifications for pastors and local churches in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So we have something like that here in Deuteronomy chapter 1. So church... Know what kind of men ought to lead the church. Know what kind of men you would appoint to such a task. 
aspiring pastors in the room. Let, let these qualifications be the focus of your life. As we go through them here in just a moment. So not only qualified to govern a nation and qualified to govern the church, but I would just mention number three, and this is for every man, every Christian man in the room, ought to strive for these qualities. Okay? As we, as we go through this here in just a moment, we're looking through each one of these, these attributes. I want to encourage every man here. This is not, it's, it's absolutely necessary that, that a pastor, for example, would have these qualities. But it's something that every man is to strive for. So keep that in mind. Every man in the room as we walk through this. So let's dig into each one of these qualifications for leadership. Number one, I mentioned that it says men. Now that's not necessarily an attribute, but I want to stop here for a moment. Notice the passage says, set aside wise, understanding, experienced men. This is a reminder for us that God's word exalts male leadership. Men are called to lead. This is not anti-woman. This is not a call for women to desist or to hide their gifts and ability, but it's a call for men to step up. Men are called to lead in God's word. Deborah led Israel for a certain amount of time. But if you read the passage, it doesn't seem like it was Deborah's fault. Where are the men? Where are the men that would lead? This is a reminder that we're called to that. Now, I realize that's not a popular opinion in our culture, but the Bible is very clear that church leaders are to be men. And the Bible is very clear that men are to lead their families and wives submit to their husbands. And the Bible is clear here in Deuteronomy that men were called to lead the people of Israel. Men of God, passivity is the prevailing char characteristic of the culture you live in. Passivity, passivity, passivity. Let this be a call to lead in the sphere God has given you. Now second, what kind of men... Our passage tells us wise and understanding men. Wise and understanding men. In other words, foolish men cannot be leaders. There must be wisdom. There must be understanding. So as it relates to leadership, knowledge really matters. Truth really matters. People are not helped by your feelings. People are not helped by, by your good intentions. You might be just very, very sincere, but they're not helped by those things. They're helped by the words of God. They must be men of wisdom and understanding, men of knowledge, men of truth. Listen to Deuteronomy 4, verse 6, and I want you to, I want you to think about this. What is wisdom? According, what is wisdom and understanding according to Deuteronomy 4, verse 6? Let me start in verse 5, actually. Listen. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. So I've taught you the words of God. You should do them. Verse 6. Keep them and do them. That will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. This will be your wisdom and understanding. What? What, what is it? 
He taught them the statutes. He taught them the word of God. And they, and they were to obey it. And as they know the word of God and hear the word of God and obey it, this is your wisdom and understanding. Leaders must be men of the word. Men of knowledge. Men of truth. I mentioned to you earlier that passage in Exodus 18 where Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, looks at Moses and says, Moses, you can't bear the burden of these people alone. And he begins to encourage him to appoint these leaders. And one of the things, when, when Jethro looks at him and says, Moses, what are you doing? Moses says, I teach the people the statutes and the laws of God. Go back and read that. What must these men be able to do? They must be wise and understanding men of knowledge and truth that can teach the statutes and the rules. Now, number three, the word here is experienced. They must be experienced men. Now, the King James says they must be known. They must be known. The New King James says they must be knowledgeable. The NIV says they must be respected. The NAS says they must be informed. This requirement, as I think about this word and what it means, they must be experienced or known and respected and informed. And I think about what this word means. It seems to be something very similar to the requirement for a pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Not a novice. Not a rookie. Must be experienced. He must be known. This is somebody that's been around long enough to earn the respect of the people. He's been around long enough to be, to be informed about what's going on around him. To be knowledgeable about the people that are around him. Now this is a rebuke. Very clearly this is a rebuke to our culture today. That so quickly appoints leaders. Doesn't matter how much you know them, do they have the degree and can they speak well in public? That's all you need to know. And this is a rebuke to that. They must be not only wise and understanding, but experienced men or known or informed or respected men. Number four, they must be impartial men. And what does that mean, impartial? Well, look at verse 17. You shall not be partial in judgment you shall hear the small and the great alike don't be partial hear the small and the great alike not showing preference to somebody because of their status or their their wealth or their position whatever it is doesn't matter they're not showing partiality like that they stand on the truth and the truth alone james chapter 2 gives us a really good description of partiality let me read that to you. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man, listen to the scenario here, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing... And you say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's partiality. That's partiality. 
And it's partiality. It's not, it's not just warning against partiality towards the rich or the wealthy, but anyone. Listen to Leviticus 19, verse 15. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge. You see, partiality, it impairs good and righteous judgment. Therefore, a good and godly leader must be an impartial man, radically devoted to the truth, to righteousness, not the preferences of men. Paul said this in Galatians 1.10, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. That man-pleasing stuff makes you so partial. If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Those things cannot coexist. And man-pleasers make terrible leaders. Man-pleasers make terrible leaders. Number five, they must be courageous men. Now you see that, as I read it earlier in 17. Verse 17 says, right in the middle, you shall not be intimidated by anyone. What kind of men? Men that are not easily intimidated. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. Now, the King James says, you shall not be afraid of the face of man. The New King James says, you shall not be afraid in any man's presence. The NIV says, do not be afraid of anyone. And our version says, do not be intimidated. Now, I want you to think about how a man that can be intimidated in the way that it perverts righteousness and justice in a leader his cowardice would keep him from declaring the truth. If I say, if I say that, what will they think? His, his fear of man, it keeps him from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And he begins to side with those that are intimidating him instead of siding with the truth. And it perverts the truth. It perverts justice. Leaders must be courageous like the Apostle Paul, I want to give you two quick examples. Second Timothy, this is towards the end of his, uh, some of the last things we get from the Apostle Paul. And he says this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 16. Listen to the courage of this man, not intimidated by anyone. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Now, this isn't self-confidence, listen. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Courageous. Everybody's against me. My enemies are against me. My brothers are not standing by my side. And the truth goes forward anyways because God stands with me. Courage rooted in God. Courage rooted in God. I want to give you another example. This is Galatians. <clears throat> Chapter 2. Listen to verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul's dealings with Peter. Now there's a man who seemed to be a pillar, a man that was a, a staple in the church, an apostle. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And it goes on to talk about how Paul confronted this stuff. You mean Peter and the rest of the Jews and your friend Barnabas and all of them stood against you in this? And yet you spoke the truth. A courageous man, not intimidated by anyone, not afraid of men, not a man pleaser, but a man that stands by the side of the truth. Leaders must be like this. Leaders must be courageous like Christ. This week I was reading just coming through the Bible, and I read in Matthew 21. I read this passage about the courage of Christ. 21 verse 12. Think about it. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Here's Jesus rebuking those leaders, rebuking those of high standing, not intimidated, not afraid, rebuking them and overturning tables. And I read that this week and I thought to myself, what, what would modern man say to him? Jesus, you're not going to win anybody acting like that. You're, you're not being very approachable right now. You're not being very approachable, Jesus. And I love how the next verse says this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Here's the unapproachable one. Not afraid, not intimidated, courageous. It, nobody's going to be able to approach you, Jesus. And the blind and the lame and the outcast, you keep reading, and children come to him. Beautiful stuff about our Savior. And leaders need to imitate Him beyond anything else. Leaders are supposed to imitate Him. Now, last one I'll mention, number six. It must be humble men. And I want to explain where I see this. Deuteronomy 1.17, at the very end there, it says, And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. They need to be able to admit when a case is too hard for them. Moses is the perfect example of this in verse 9. What does Moses say? I'm not able to bear you by myself. I'm not able to bear you by myself. Good leaders are humble men. They know their own weakness. They know their own insufficiency. They do not have self-confidence. Self-confidence disqualifies a man from leadership. Good and godly leaders have no confidence in self, but their confidence is in their God. Psalm 147 verse 10 says, God's delight is not in the strength of the horse. God's, God's pleasure is not in the legs of a man. But God takes pleasure in those who fear Him. To those who hope in His mercy. Humble men who fear God, who don't fear men, but they fear the Lord in humility. Now I want to, in closing on that, I want to call every man of Grace Community Church to consider these things. From what people say about just looking around at the church that's all around them in our culture and our day, there seems to be a famine of godly, humble, 
bold and courageous, wise and understanding men. It seems to be an absence of that in so much of the church of our day and our culture. Now, I give praise to the living God. I look around at my brothers and sisters, I pray for this church, and I don't think that's so here. They're godly man after godly man that aren't perfect, having a rod, but growing. But I want to encourage every man here to consider these things and strive for these characteristics, strive for these attributes while you stand on God's promises. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and letting us meditate on it together. God, help us. Help us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a zeal for the war that you've set before us, God. This proclamation of your word, this striving for holiness, this building your church and advancing your kingdom, Lord. God, cause us to be those that obey you and go. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people that go in faith. God, cause us to love your promises and to know your promises. That our hearts would be full on the things that you have spoken, the things that are just true, regardless of what we see around us, God. I pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with that. God, I pray that you would make us a people marked by righteousness, a holy people, full of Christ's likeness, Lord. Help us, please. And God, I pray specifically for the men in this church, God, that you would make us godly men and that you would cause us, Lord, to step up in the areas where you've called us to lead, Lord, and that we would lead well and faithfully for your name's sake. Help us, Lord, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.